Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Jasmine Fellows. Jasmine is editor of Double Helix, Cyrus STEM magazine for young readers. Join us as we talk about Double Helix, her love of music, and Cyrus Publishing's new book, More Hands on Science. Thank you, Jasmine, for joining me today on Steam Powered. It's fantastic to finally get you on. Thank you for having me on the show. So, yeah, uh, we've known each other since we were like, what, 10? Something like that. I think so. Yeah, it's been a long, long time. Yeah, it's been ages. But yeah, and you got me hooked onto Double Helix. I remember that as well. <laughs> yes, I was a fan of Double Helix as a kid, and now I'm here editing the magazine. Yeah, that's amazing. So, you know, when you started out, like you, you started at uni studying genetics and what else? Uh, I also did a Bachelor of Arts with a major in History and Philosophy of Science. But I'd gone in wow. all revved up, ready to go, like science all the way. And I just started picking up these art subjects one after the other. <laughs> when I was in high school, it had always been really important to me to have a balance of subjects. So done biology, chemistry, math, but I also had art, music, and English. And so once I got to university, uh, yeah, I I was looking for that balance once again. Yeah, after doing the entire combination, it'd be hard to just have to drop one of those aspects once you actually progress. Yeah, definitely. So what made you pursue genetics? I'd thought about it for a long time. I think it came up maybe when I was about 12 years old, it was on the radar already. I think I was always very interested in biology as part of the world around me and my relationship with the world. So understanding what was going on in my body. Yes. I think with genetics, there was also the puzzle aspect of it that I really liked. Um, You know, looking at planet squares and um, how how particular traits would arise. That's great. And then, so did you double degree with the arts as well? I did, yes. Um, wow. And it just started one one subject at a time. The first <laughs> one was just called collecting Witches, them. Quacks and Lunatics. And it was there were some really great historical stories in there and I was really attracted to these ideas of the stories of science. Yes, and I think you can see where that um, yeah, that path led. Course. But it also allowed me to take subjects and things like theatre. I did some Japanese. I liked the idea of being able to follow where my interests went. Oh, that's amazing! Just being able to trail that, yeah, yeah, package it all together into um, something that I could use later on in life. Yeah, definitely. All of those are entirely applicable in so many different areas, and. Yeah, so when you decided to do your honours degree and you took up, you know, the history and the philosophy of science, but philosophy of science is such an interesting kind of avenue to pursue. Uh, I mean, obviously, yes. you know, you're, you're interested in the stories and the mechanics and how it all fits together, but it's, it doesn't seem to me like a very common kind of area to explore a bit further for a lot of people. No, and I think it's actually a very important Thing, thinking about the way we do science to make sure that the information we get is quality information 
and it is something I do now try and slot in here and there in Double Helix. Yeah. Uh, really trying to promote critical thinking as well as um, the science topics. Mm, yes, definitely. So where did you see yourself going with, you know, taking all of these subjects? I mean, obviously you've got so many opportunities based on how broad, you know, the coverage is, but what uh, did you envisage yourself doing? Well, <laughs> I do remember back to when my mum was like, and honours in history and philosophy of science, what are you ever going to do with that? <laughs> yes. I think it's really important to listen to where your interests are and then look at the skills that come out of that. I think that's been one of the really important takeaway messages reflecting back on how I got to where I am now. Yeah. So I was developing skills in storytelling. I was developing skills around critical thinking mm. I did panic in the last two weeks to be <laughs> <laughs> just as I was about to submit going oh now I have to get a job in the real world <laughs> <laughs> there were a couple of jobs that came up that I applied for and um, both of those were science presentation type roles so science communication roles and I was just lucky enough to land one. I'd also tied in, um, you know, the things that I enjoyed doing for fun throughout uni. I did a lot of amateur theatre and things like that. Yeah. So uh, I had presentation skills at the time. And, um, yeah, just making sure those were in my CV so that when I was applying for fun science presentation jobs, that they could see that I had those. Um, even though I hadn't always studied all of it specifically at university. But it's all skills that you're developing anyway as part of what you're doing. Yeah. I also took a bit of a leap and applied for a job up in Darwin. I'd been studying in Sydney. Yeah. So uh, I think that helped open doors as well, uh, looking broader. Yeah, definitely. So during your panic period, what kind of ideas came up for the kinds of places that you want to head to? I mean, obviously communications is going to be a huge one, but did you ever think about, you know, continuing with academia or, you know, getting regular science or regular teaching work? It didn't cross my mind at the time. I was looking for something that was fun and I really needed a change. Sydney, yeah. I worked out the atmosphere wasn't for me. I, I know lots of people love the big bustling city and that was great um, for me while I was studying, but I really wanted to go somewhere a little bit more peaceful and, and take a bit of a breath. Yeah. So that was also a factor in, in considering what jobs I was applying for. Wow. Okay. So when you came out, you went straight into communications and you know, how did you get from there to becoming editor at Double Helix? So the job I took was with CSIRO, doing hands-on science shows around the Northern Territory. Oh, that would have been cool. While I was doing that, I was still studying. Wow. Uh, yeah. So I did some um, certificates, one in writing, and I also did a marketing communication one, though that was a little bit later on in, in the picture. So continuing to study and then looking for opportunities within the organisation. Wow. So tell me about the live presentations 
uh, that was targeted at kids, but what sort of things did you have to do? So liquid nitrogen demos, dry ice, explosions. All the flashy stuff. All the flashy stuff, yeah. Yeah. So when you started getting towards, you know, double helix, like now that you're doing all of the editorial work, what does that, that involve? So making a magazine takes about three and a half months start to finish and we're always on this cycle because uh, you, you start one and then you've got to keep that rolling while the next one slots in. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I start out by working with writers and getting ideas for stories, usually around a theme we've set. And the theme is tested with our audience. So we know what our target audience is looking for. There's a great review team of about, I think there's about 40 kids on there at the moment. And we say, oh, you know, do you want to hear about robots next? Or uh, we'll do some space exploration, maybe some rainbows and illusions, dinosaurs. So we're trying to plug into what's happening in the world in a way that's of uh, interest to our young readers. Oh, that's brilliant. So how do you, you know, where do you get the, uh, your, I guess, your focus group from? Yeah, there are different kids around Australia who are excited about our magazine. They also do things like book reviews for us or try out toys that are oh, STEM-related. Nice. That's a great job. <laughs> So let's backtrack a bit. Uh, tell me about what Double Helix is, as though you know I've never heard of it before. So Double Helix is CSIRO science magazine for kids. Well, I say science magazine, but it's really a STEM magazine. We try and get that technology, engineering, and math in there. Uh, we've got news articles, competitions, puzzles, comics, activities. There's so much packed into it. It's really fun. Oh, that's brilliant. So how long has the magazine been going for? Kicked off in 1986 as a newsletter. Yeah. And it has been adapting and growing since then. That's amazing. Like just, that's what, what, 30, nearly 30, 40 years worth of all this amazing science education that, you know, we've, you know, we, we've literally grown up with it. It's been brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So when you're, you know, picking your themes, um, you know, what, from that point, you know, where do you go from there? So we put a call out to our writers to get an idea of um, what stories might be out there. We also do a bit of digging as an editorial team in case there's anything uh, we want to touch on that's particularly timely or um, groundbreaking research. And then we work with the writers to make sure that those stories are where they need to be and that they have all the information correct. Often that's involves working with scientists or communicators, uh, reading peer-reviewed material, discuss, discussing simplification, making yeah. sure that things are suitable for our readers, so age-appropriate, but not dumbing down the material. We yeah. want to make sure that it's still accurate yet simple. So we've talked a little bit about the writing side of things and working yeah. with the writers, uh, but once that comes in, it goes through an editorial process, so a fact-check, a copy-edit, um, and then it goes from there to the designer and then the design is checked. Um, I, we also make, need to make sure that there are images and photos coming in that are going in at that stage as well. And then once we're finished with the designer, we hand over to our production team who gets it to print. And then from print, 
to mail out. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's great. Well, because the magazine like targets you know, a reasonable age range for the kids, um, how do you make sure that that gets communicated in a way that is able to be um, digested, I guess, for such a you know, wide range of academic and understanding level? Always a challenge. We do have our review team that we call upon and we also survey our readers to make sure that they feel like the material is written appropriately. So making sure that the words are age appropriate but also the concepts because sometimes you can get a scientific concept that's hard but easy to explain with words but you know making those connections on both of those levels is the real challenge. An example might be uh, we have an article that we're not sure about and then we could take that to a focus group. So sometimes we do focus groups through schools and we present the article and ask them about the language in it. So one that comes to mind from a couple of years back was use of the word innovation and trying to get young readers to understand what innovation is and means. Yeah. And that word wasn't resonating with them, whereas it was quite an important word in terms of, uh, you know, how organisations were seeing science. Yeah. So we really made sure that we elaborated on that and chose words that helped the young readers understand what was happening, like discovery. But you lose a bit of the nuance in trying to do that, though. Is that problematic? If we feel that we're going to lose important nuance, we will use explainers and we'll take a little bit of time to to draw out the concept um occasionally we'll use a glossary on a page as well to help uh, break down those ideas but we prefer to incorporate it into the articles where we can yeah so what's a typical day look like for you as an editor oh a typical day (laughs) i don't know if i have those (laughs) but that's part of the fun actually is that um because the content is ever shifting and changing and moving and moving with the science, it means that the types of content that come across my desk are really different all the time. And I'm working with quite a lot of people making this fantastic content. So it's really enjoyable from that perspective. A typical day though might be meeting with the team in the morning. Since COVID, we've changed the way we work quite significantly. And um, the, the team are working from home. So we do have a daily editorial catch up where we work out what's going on. So we publish online content on our website fairly regularly, a couple of times a week. So we're working out what needs to go up for that. We need to work out what part of the magazine cycle we're in and set any priorities around that. And then also make sure that any additional projects so if there's a book project or something like that, that that is also incorporated into where we're up to. Yeah. And from there, the day, um, it, it, it really depends, but often might be reading over articles, sending feedback to writers, might be selecting images. It might be looking over pages that have come back from the designer. So we've got a checklist of all the things that we're looking for to make sure that the content is correct. Uh, it might be sending things off to uh, scientists or communicators to make sure that they also think that we're, you know, spot on with our accuracy. 
and there are probably a million other things that I'm doing as well, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't end. So you were saying that with the online content, because you're also constantly publishing that as well. That's basically like just a third magazine that you're running while you're actually doing your other two print ones. Like, do you actually treat that as a separate issue or, you know, does the content tend to, you know, tie in with what's going to be in the magazines or is it completely separate? All of the above. All of the above. <laughs> so sometimes the online content will be tied to what's coming up in the magazine, particularly around that six-week cycle. So the magazine comes out eight times a year, every month and a half, roughly. So when a new issue is coming out, it'll be trying to get things uh, aligned with that. Otherwise, it's keeping an ear to the ground about what's going on, what media releases are out, um, any new research that's been published that might be of interest to our audience, trying to get that incorporated in there, trying to work out whether it's incorporated as a news type story or whether it's incorporated as a hands-on activity because it's really great when you can get those hands-on activities where um, it's helping to explain current science while also having a go. Oh, that's amazing. So, you know, do, does part of, as part of that online um, content, do you also produce um, other media, video, audio to go along with that? Or is that uh, purely in text like magazines? It's typically text and images like the magazine because that's our specialty. Yeah. Sometimes we're lucky enough to receive uh, audio or video that will work with that content as well. And we do include it when we can. Oh, that's brilliant. Have you guys actually thought about, you know, branching out into Double Helix YouTube? <laughs> Not at this stage. Not I think we've got quite a lot on our plate. Oh, definitely, yeah. We have in the past had the occasional uh, YouTube video. Uh, if you look back at the archives, there is one where I'm hula hooping on YouTube while uh, our wonderful presenters are explaining the physics of bowling, so spinning and rolling at the same time. That's cool. Yeah, that kind of stuff's great. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, and you're hooping. Are you still doing your hooping? Because that, that was, I saw that, that was, what, about seven, eight years ago now? Or was that longer? Oh, yeah, hooping idol. <laughs> uh, it might have, oh, I don't remember. It was a while back, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah, beyond the, um, Yeah, beyond memory. Beyond the memory page. <laughs> but um, I did do one hooping video this year. Uh, as part of uh, my music, I, I enjoy putting up YouTube music videos. So I'm on YouTube <laughs> playing daggy ukulele. Yep. And this particular video, I was full of hooping and playing ukulele at the same time. Oh, multitasking queen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, lockdown, what else are you going to do? Oh, yeah. Got to develop those extra skills. I, I don't know if it's of interest, but yes. um, I was looking at a 2008 copy of Double Helix, which is one of the first yeah. ones I edited. And oh, wow. we're looking at the articles inside it just to see, you know, how things have changed and how far we've come in, yeah. in my time as editor. And there's a story in there that's titled The Future of DVD. <gasps> oh, how vintage. <laughs> so I was like, you know, is Blu-ray Blu going to win out or with HD DVD? Yeah. <laughs> I'm oh like, my goodness! Wow, that that does age me a little bit. Yes, it does. Like, um, 
I remember looking at some of my old textbooks from information systems at you know in high school, and the information just dates so badly. <laughs> and even then, like I I dug up and I found another. I don't even know where it's from. It's probably my brother's. Um, it was an old. It was a spiral bound com- book about computers, and it would have been from the late eighties. But just looking at the difference between that and then high school 10 years later and now just watching seeing all that information date so awfully (laughs) it's just hilarious just seeing how far we've come one of the headlines on the very first double helix newsletter was can girls do science (gasps) and of course the answer was yes you know (laughs) they were trying to be inclusive and you know saying that um science is a place for everyone but obviously language has changed over the years and the way these sorts of ideas are put have changed over the years that's incredible but I do remember you know double helix it's always had a range of people in it and represented and showing the science and I think it was actually a really important part of me being somewhat protected in my high school years about um those ideas in science, you know, coming out the other end going, you know, of course girls can do science. That was never a question whether or not that was a thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, you know, both of us heading into those sorts of areas and growing up with that magazine, it, it was never really an issue of can we? It's, we, you know, of course, it was just assumed that it was a possibility. But, you know, it's because we had those sorts of resources and those kind of people around us that allowed us to be able, well, I guess, to have the privilege of believing that. Absolutely. Definitely a privilege. And I know I had some amazing, strong women around me, my mother included, who was just like, you can do whatever you want to do. Just yeah. believe you can do it. Go out there, get it. Um, you know, Put yourself out there for those opportunities. Definitely. Yeah. You won't know until you give it a go. Well, 2008, when you first started editing, double helix to now so you know you can imagine that in terms of you know you said that your jobs changed over that time even though you you know what your title has been similar and you know that would be obvious in terms of the technology available the kind of tools that you use but what sort of other changes you know have you observed over that time in the way that role and the work that you and your team do kind of you know How's that changed over time? Connectivity is a lot easier now. So it gives us a lot more opportunity to get and incorporate feedback from our audience, but also from scientists and other people involved in the scientific community. And I think that really helps improve the way we create our content and the outcomes we have for the publications. Exciting. Yeah, it is very exciting. On the flip side, there's, uh, you know, uh, what is real news? (laughs) Um, So making sure that we do get it right and that um, our our readers have the critical thinking skills to be able to analyse what they're reading and make sure that it's accurate scientific information. So how do you promote critical thinking to 8 to 14-year-olds? We use science fiction quite a lot. Um, So... It's a way to imagine what the world might be like depending on how the technology goes. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, I really like that as a tool um, to yeah. get that imagination going. So I guess there's critical thinking in terms of the applications of the technology and then there's also critical thinking in terms of getting the information and evaluating it. It's a lot to unpack. Uh, so <laughs> we might, for instance, look at um, some kind of hoaxes or conspiracy theories and think about how we get the right information to make a judgment on that. We've done that a few times. Um, That's a good one, though. But I also love the science fiction in terms of thinking about current technologies and where they might take us in society. Yeah, just, you know, how the, the potential that all of this technology has for us in the future. Yeah, particularly, um, you know, ethical considerations around AI and robotics and things like that as yeah. um, it's harder to distinguish between. Um, it is. Yeah, the, the real world of technology and the levers that are being pulled behind the scenes. And we are kind of getting towards Asimov kind of territory. Yeah, but all of these concepts, they're all, they're all very mature concepts and, you know, it, it's things that you want, you know, in a way you want the kids to be able to start thinking about these sorts of ideas, but they do unlock a lot of other questions that, you know, potentially their parents won't have the capacity to be able to assist with. So, you know, when, when you do approach these sorts of topics, how do you handle the fact that some of these do need a little bit more to expand on. I mean, obviously you're not going to be talking about the ethics of, you know, robotics and AI <laughs> at that at that kind of level, but, you know, I'm sure you touch on some of those topics. We do talk about how people are doing the programming and need to be considerate. And, and we do talk to the experts in these fields and interview them to get their perspectives on it so that, that, so that the readers can hear it um, from those people. We can say, you know, oh, you know, that term, that's a, that's a bit complex. Um, do you have a simpler way you can explain it? Do you have an analogy you could use? Um, something that an eight-year-old will have experienced in their daily life. That's a little bit like what you're talking about. You, you want a framework for kids to ask more questions. And I think asking more questions is a great thing. If, if there are some more questions coming out of what they're reading, Fantastic. We do have a column called Microscope where readers can send in questions and then um, we answer them in the magazine as well. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not all one way. Yes. <laughs> yeah, after talking to you a while ago about doing this show, so I, I did have to have a lot more of a think about how you know, I was going to present this content and how it would work. And obviously I had to change some of the ways that I wanted to do this yeah just yeah the idea of the the you know psychom to grown-ups and people who have you know high school and university level of education understanding and that yeah that's entirely different to the way that you know you communicate to younger children having to be able to process that information and digest it and um, condense it into a form that they understand it's you know, it, it's a very complicated process. <laughs> it does take time to get it right. So we don't always get it right straight up. And that's why, you know, we have the processes we have in place um, to try and produce the best product we can. Um, and it's one of the reasons why 
I love working in print is because we have a chance to look at the material, think about it, review it, get it through those processes and polish it up. Yes, because, you know, I was doing the hands-on science shows um, and that's nice because you get the immediate audience feedback and you can work to that. Um, and then I guess this is on the, the flip side of that. Um, but I'm also making sure that we do have focus groups and a review team and things like that. So I am getting feedback over time that goes back into the product. You know, it's quite different um, working as an editor compared to being in a classroom almost every day. Um, and being in a classroom almost every day is really what allowed me to do what I do now. But it's also now been 12 years since I've been in a classroom every day. <laughs> so making sure I'm in touch with that, um, that target audience and a, and a broad range of that target audience as well. So as you mentioned with my daughter being five coming up now, she's, she's going to, in a sense, start informing that um, target audience as well. But she's, you know, one kid in a particular circumstance, you know, uh, we do want to be thinking about getting out to all different sorts of kids all across Australia. So, um, yeah, having it, having that broader review team is really important to us. Yeah, it is. It's very important. Ah, and you've also just put, or CSIRO has put out a new book recently. So tell me about that. Yes. So we've got more hands-on science and I was one of the editors on that, which was really exciting and fun to do. So it's packed with 50 fun activities. I've talked a little bit about the hands-on activities we do and how important it is that um, we get those science concepts in there. And some of them are related to quite recent scientific developments. I think my oh, favourite wow. is the, the jelly lens that you can make for a smartphone. And oh, that's nice. linked to research happening at the Australian National University. That's cool. So how do you guys um, put together all these activities? Like, It, it must take quite a long time to be able to assemble you know all of this work I mean some of them will be things that people have seen before but you know how do you you know how do you come up with all the activities for the book over time so some of them we are creating for uh, the magazine or the website um yeah there's lots of places we get ideas from so David Shaw who I work with he has um this appreciation of, of fake science videos on YouTube. <laughs> so he's often inspired by something where he's like, oh, I don't know if that's, that's really real or not. And he goes out and tests it. And if it's not, he will come up with something adjacent. So it does oh, nice. have that wow factor. Yeah. So that's uh, one of the ways he comes up with ideas. I'm keen to be looking at news, news stories and tying things in with that. I think that's really important. And then sometimes writers come to us with ideas as well. And then these collections that we make, like in the book, they are collected from a few years' worth of work. Uh, books, books take a while to put together. I, I was uh, looking over the emails to this one to get a sense of how long it took us to put together. And we submitted the manuscript in December last year. But obviously, we were talking about the idea October last year, and then we'd already been creating hands-on activities that flowed into that prior to that. So oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's, 
good that we can um, uh, give our work this opportunity to shine, yeah. uh, things that we've put so many years into. That's fantastic. So what age group is the book targeted for? It's for 8 to 14-year-olds, similar to uh, Double Helix magazine. Having said that, uh, I've been doing some of these supervised with my five-year-old daughter and she's <laughs> been having a great time. It's actually been a real pleasure to see her start to engage with the work I do. Oh, nice. And COVID's actually been an amazing opportunity for her to be around while I'm creating and going through the editorial process. Yeah, so she can definitely see, you know, what sort of things mum does and, you know, how she does her work. Yes, and, you know, I had this uh, paper up on my screen about bubbles and she saw the pictures and she's like, oh, you know, what's this? And those questions have also really helped me um, think about my work from a different perspective. It's great. Oh, that's such a great way of being able to do things. Yeah, you have your own little test audience <laughs> so when you guys are doing the hands-on experiments that you incorporate into the magazine I mean clearly it's a whole this this often the don't do this at home or do the supervise how do you handle the safety aspects of those experiments well yes we do take safety really seriously and we have risk assessments that we complete so we get the idea for a hands-on activity and then Within the editorial team, a couple of us will be looking at it from a safety perspective and we have a sheet we fill in to make sure that we've looked at each of the potential hazards as well as the environmental side of things. So, for example, if there's a straw being used in the activity, will a paper straw work as well as a plastic one? You know, we want to be making sure that kids are being as environmental as possible. And also in the book, that we've put out, we've put a message in the front saying, hey, you don't need to necessarily buy what you need for this activity. You know, what have you got around the house that you can use already? Can you put out a call to friends and family and get something and reuse that and then return it or find a way to do it more environmentally? Oh, that's great. It's good getting to think about the way that, you know, they, you know, access all these items. It's fantastic. And we do have messages in all of the publications. So we've got safety icons to clearly notify what the potential hazards might be. And we do have the safety messaging that we've developed uh, and will be included uh, for every every activity that might need it. Oh, that's brilliant. So how do you gauge what will be safe for a wide range of kids? Because, you know, 8 and 14, there's a big difference in abilities. Absolutely. And we do say to adults getting the publications you know it's important for you to be um understanding of where your child reader is at Um, but we do consider reading age as part of it as well so to be able to read and execute the activity they will already be at a certain level so um yeah that's all taken into consideration and we also have access to the health and safety um team at CSIRO so if we do have any particular questions about chemicals we'll have a health and safety officer look at it first and if it needs to go to a scientist it goes to a scientist yeah that's pretty handy I mean having them at your, almost at your disposal <laughs> <laughs> well CSIRO is incredibly supportive um, broadly of the work that we're doing and another yeah. way that 
that's shown is through things like diversity. Uh, we've got a diversity team, so if we have questions on that front, we can get those ideas incorporated. And the Office of Indigenous Engagement as well, because we yeah. are trying to include and showcase um, with respect all of that content as well. Yeah. So what sort of issues come up in terms of diversity for a publication like Double Helix? We've been working on an article about colourblindness, for instance. Um, so there's some quite complex genetics involved with that, um, often about XX and XY chromosomes. So we just want to make sure that it's done uh, respectfully and inclusively and indicating in a way that it's sex-linked rather than a gender issue um, without necessarily needing to delve in all the way. Yeah. So that's an example of how we're considering diversity as we're producing the publication. And we're very aware that we're in so many ways, you know, pushing out our information. Yeah. People can contact us, you know, um, we've got a blog and um, you can email, all that kind of thing. But in a sense, we're putting information out to young people and it's not like it's in a classroom environment where there's a teacher there to mediate. Yeah. It's not like there's always a, a parent there reading with them all the time. I mean, yeah. I know that the product is used with families, but it's just really important to be aware that kids might be reading something by themselves and that they need to be able to interpret it. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, it's it's a one-way communication medium. So it, it's something where, you know, whatever you put out, you have to hope that they can kind of understand or at least figure out how to ask about it later on if they need to for any kind of these, any of these topics. Awesome. Well, uh, what we can do now is we can talk about those extra questions that I had for you. So what sort of hobby or interest do you have outside your work that is, yeah, that's most unrelated to your work? Playing ukulele. Well, you know, music generally. I am a big fan of playing music. Yeah. So you, yeah, I mean, you played cello when you were at school and, you know, now ukulele, like it's been a massive part of your life. So, you know, why the ukulele? <laughs> because when my daughter was young, I wanted something where I could sing and play along and it just seemed like the easiest thing to pick up. My stepdaughter also, like in those first few weeks of being on at home with a new child, she was like, oh, can you take me out to the music store and buy me a ukulele? And I was like, oh, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll get you a ukulele. And then I saw her and how she was going with it and um, it just seemed like such a fun instrument. So a few weeks later, I was back at the music store, got my own, and um, I've been enjoying it ever since. It's a really great community instrument. Yeah, it is. So once Extremely I was, portable. Oh, yeah, much more portable than a cello. I, I that's, <laughs> that's really the reason I want you to <laughs> um, I, I do still play cello as well, and I've been playing piano. I find piano particularly good for the um, for mental health. Like It's yeah. just one of those lovely instruments where I can just sit there, do some exercises, zone out, be really mindful, um, and play something that, you know, sounds beautiful and complete and classical. And yeah. um, it really takes me away from whatever else is going on. Oh, that's brilliant. So what, yeah, you've been doing some, like, I guess, events with your ukulele lately? Events? <laughs> yes, yeah. I have. Um, 
Yeah, I was lucky enough to play outdoors to people last week. Which <gasps> Ooh, the novel. first time since um, lockdown. Um, it was, yeah, really pleasant. Mm, and I've got another fun. one coming up in a few weeks. So Ooh, very nice. I just do it for fun, you know, get yeah. out and about. Mm. Yeah. And have you been writing your music, did I see? Writing? Yes, I write music. I am a songwriter. I was fortunate enough to be accepted into uh, the Australian National University Song for Studio program earlier this year. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Oh, uh, thanks. So it was, you know, a, a short course where you went in, you wrote a song and recorded it in the studios in the space of four weeks. It was oh, goodness. really intense. But I got to play that beautiful grand piano and play a thing I wrote and get it recorded oh wow so how do you no how how do you write your own piece (laughs) (laughs) it's taken me a really long time to get there I don't know why but you know as, as I've been saying I've played music for a really long time so I started piano when I was four years old I think and then um picked up cello when I was eight and I always played other people's music. And then in the last year, um, I did singing lessons because I was like, I've always wanted to sing more and it's never too late. I'm just going to go and take some singing lessons. And my yeah. singing teacher said, hey, do you want to write your own stuff as well? And I was like, well, I can arrange things, but I can't really write my own stuff. And she's like, if you can arrange stuff, you can write your own yeah. music. And then she gave me this one exercise that was quite a simple exercise about how chords fit in with scales and for me it was like this key that unlocks songwriting um finally wow Uh, and now I'm hooked I love doing it um and I particularly like writing songs that capture my place and time so I've written this song um that's essentially for my daughter she loves going on adventures particularly nighttime out late, you know, where it's a little bit naughty because you're staying up a little bit too late. So I've written this song called Out in the Late about that experience. And it's just so lovely to see her take it on and sing it and own it. And it's oh, something wow. that's really special for the two of us. Oh, that's brilliant. Such a wonderful activity to share with her. Yeah. And we do write our uh, own songs together, but they're not the sort that I usually release in public because they're usually very (laughs) 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 rude (laughs) but um, you know I think it's really great to be um that kind of creative from a young age I'm great I'm really grateful that I can help facilitate that with her oh that's wonderful being able to get that balance is amazing so at your next performance is that going to be another original song um, I, I have incorporated uh, some original songs now into my set that I do as part of my duo. So that's really nice. That is very cool. Mm, and I, I do want to do more originals oh. if, as long as people will listen to them. <laughs> but um, the, the feedback has been really lovely, which is I'm, I'm really grateful for. Yeah, That's wonderful. I love that. Cool. Okay. And... Which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? The Magic School Bus Inside the Human Body 
I think Ooh. is one that is really strong in my memory. I used to pick it up and read it, particularly if I was having a bad night, you know, if I had a nightmare or something, I'd just revisit that book. I just really liked all the illustrations and that mix of science and imagination, I think. Yeah. Um, and that idea of science and imagination is still so important in my work today. So I think it has had an influence on where I've gone. That's amazing. Is that one that you've shared with your daughter as well? I haven't yet. <laughs> I don't actually have a copy in my house anymore, so I'm going to have to hunt one down. Yeah, definitely. It's cool. Okay, and finally, what advice would you give someone who wants to do what you do or what advice should they ignore? Don't look to be doing exactly what someone else is doing. I, I've noticed as the years have gone by that my job, even though my title has been similar for a long time, what I do and how I do it has changed a lot. So looking for opportunities to take skills based on things you like and piecing them together as a job and finding jobs that align with that, I think is really the key these days. Yeah. And what sort of advice should they ignore? Well, I think it's important to listen to other people's feedback, but also to forge your own path in a sense, because, you know, when I started doing history and philosophy of science, it wasn't immediately evident how I could apply that. Um, so for instance, mum was like, uh, you know, what kind of a job yeah. are you going to get with that? Do you, do you really want to do that? And I was like, well, yes, I am really interested in it. And I think that I will find a way to make it work. And because I was really passionate about it, I did. And I think it's easier to find a way to make something work if you are passionate about it rather than, yes. you know, just going in with someone else's advice because it's safe. Yeah, if if you don't have the passion and the drive to be able to do what it is that you're doing then you're not going to be able to yeah you're not going to be motivated to really make it work for you in the way that you want it to work and I do understand that some of this is coming from a place of privilege oh um, yes of course but yeah you work with what you've got that's mm. pretty much all you can do so when you were doing the road shows were there any difficult things that came up with your feedback or difficult questions that you know you got asked probably I don't think my memory is that good. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was about having fun and being entertaining and um, creating that really uh, exciting science atmosphere, um, which, you know, then helps give the motivation to get stuck into the content, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Because it does take perseverance to get through um well, firstly, science in high school and then yeah. science at university as well. And I am quite aware that, um, you know, I studied science at university, but I didn't go on to be a scientist. Yeah. And I think some of that is due to, um, it's due to not having as much of an opportunity to get hands-on with the material, I think at the time I was studying university and the subjects I chose, I probably should have done more microbiology. That was really <laughs> <laughs> With the agar plates and going out and trying to isolate bacteria, I really enjoyed that. Oh, yeah, that would have been amazing. <laughs> Could always start now. 
<laughs> That's true. Yep. I, I guess I was 25 when I landed the Helix editor role. Yeah. And I had been thinking about doing something else, but I, over the last few years, have worked out that, you know, why why would you be looking somewhere else to do something else, or why would you do that when you love what you do? So exactly, I say that I um, hope to be as to double helix as Anthony is to the Wiggles. <laughs> that's I good aspirations, out, right as long there. as I have me. Yeah. Ah, oh, that's brilliant. Okay, so thank you so much, Jasmine, for speaking to me today. It's been really brilliant learning about, you know, your journey from, you know, school all the way to now doing science communication and being the editor of Double Helix. So if people would like to learn more about what you do and Double Helix and the new book, where can they go? The website is the best spot for it, www.doublehelix.csiro.au. That's brilliant. Fantastic. So, okay, well, thank you so much again. It's been wonderful having you on. And, yeah, I hope you have a wonderful day. Great. Thanks, Michelle. I've loved speaking with Jasmine about Double Helix, a publication that we both grew up with that's still inspiring young STEM enthusiasts so many years on. It's also been wonderful learning about the editorial process for both the magazine and the new book, More Hands-On Science, and how much work goes into getting engaging and age-appropriate STEM content out to younger readers. To learn more about Jasmine and what we discuss on the show or to connect with us, please visit the Steam Powered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also reach out to Jasmine on Twitter at jazzfellows, find out more about Double Helix at doublehelix.syro.au and the new book More Hands-On Science at publish.syro.au. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek-curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.